0: This is David Patterson, Professor David Patterson, being interviewed by Derek Hockaday, 8th of January, 2019. David,
1: what really made you come from Western Australia to Oxford? Uh, Well, I I was fortunate to um, get a scholarship from Australia, Mm -hmm. um, not being Australian, but um, they were kind enough to give me a Hackett scholarship to do a DPhil, And I came to New College to work. But wo- you
0: must have applied for the scholarship. I mean, you wanted to come to England.
1: Yeah, well, I, that's right. I'd, I'd actually visited Oxford right. um, a year or so before in the early 80s and met Dan Cunningham and Abby Peterson mm-hmm. because I was interested in, in the control of breathing. And at that stage, Oxford was the mega home for the control of breathing. And I, I came to Oxford and I fell in love with the place and was tossing up about going to UCLA or coming to Oxford, so I applied for a scholarship and was fortunate to get it, and this scholarship could take me anywhere I wanted to go in the world. And I was minded to go to America, but the Americans never wrote back, whereas Oxford <laughs> did, and the rest is history. Yeah, okay, sure, I understand. So you came to work with Dan Cunningham? Yeah, I came to work with Dan, and Dan, had in fact, had just retired, and so I didn't see much of him. And then I worked with Ebby Peterson at New College. Mm-hmm. And I thought, he sadly died of cancer yes. um, during my time. And then I, I was shunted to Bob Torrance because I was just in chemo reception. So I kind of flipped um, between room three, Bob Torrance, where Piers Nye was. And uh, at that stage, Peter Robbins had just been appointed mm-hmm. and, and had taken Dan's post. So I kind of worked across the human and the cat lab.
0: When did you switch from breathing to the heart, is it
1: right? Okay, so breathing to the heart is interesting because um, I was working on um, the regulation of potassium and how potassium affects physiological systems. And we had seen in humans during exercise, and this was work done with James Conway, in cardiology mm-hmm. with Peter Slade. Mm-hmm. They put catheters in our subjects and these subjects got very hyperkalemic during exercise and of course all the physicians at the Radcliffe said well this is impossible because clearly you've got hemolyzed blood mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and no one has a, a potassium of 8 millimolar right without not having serious cardiac events and and then that that got me into into the heart because Gosh, I I, nice. I said well look, here's an observation the hyperkalemic why aren't they going to asystole why weren't they dropping dead and so I worked that got me into cardiac electrophysiology mm-hmm. and I postdoc uh, with Dennis Noble and Hilary Brown mm-hmm. learnt patch clamp mm-hmm. and worked in that area of the heart so mm-hmm. I, I it was a sort of a tortuous route uh, but that's how I got there after spending some time in America as a postdoc.
0: Yes. Fundamentally, I want to ask you how things have changed during your you know, contact with uh, Oxford. How do you see teaching having changed? Because you would have come as a tutorial fellow.
1: Yeah, yeah so I was my first appointment was a mm-hmm. tutorial fellow back in the early 90s. And it was quite interesting. This is before divisionalization had taken place. It was the old faculty board of physiological sciences and clinical medicine. And in those days, um, you know, the tutors, the tutorial fellows, you know, had a big influence in the system, you know, in terms of what went on. You know, most of the research took place in South Parks Road and on the old Radcliffe infirmary, with, a, with some taking place at the John rackland but this is long before the Old Road campus was even built yes. and the Weatherall Institute was just being conceived uh, and, and being built at that time, so the teaching has changed um, a lot um, the curriculum has evolved and I think it's more focused because before the Oxford students were very good, as David Witteridge would say journalistic style writing but for content (laughs) might be seen to be wanting in some areas but having said that as John Lettingham would always say doesn't really matter what you chaps teach them just get them excited and we'll fill the gaps when they come up to see us Uh in terms of Mm -hmm. content so we tended to pretty much in my early days as a tutor we would not work in curriculum we would tend to Work around areas that interested us and hopefully interested yes. our pupils, yes. uh, and not be too textbook driven with them. And I would have thought there was even more choice now. Is that right? Yeah, there's way more choice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because okay. you know the the curriculum was small in mm. you know thirty years ago, mm. and we didn't have all that post-genomic information. And you know genetics plays a big part now in medicine, whereas 30 years ago it was a very small part mm. of it so you know something's got to shift to accommodate that and these days you know I think these days the students have much more pro forma experience say compared to students 30 what years does it ago mean? I think it's more pre-cooked in the right, system okay. more pre-cooked Yes. whereas I think before it was a little bit Darwinian uh, uh, yes. <laughs> you, you know like Oxford is a funny place, as you know, because you've been a student yeah. here. That, You know, you'll either make it or you don't make it. Uh, and I think it, that's how it used to be. I think yeah. now, you know, it's, it's more integrated. It's, you know, you've got to be pretty bad not to get through the system mm-hmm. here. Whereas I think many, many decades ago, you know, you were kind of left to your own devices a bit. Mm-hmm. and that suited some people very yes. well and other people and some of your contemporaries might have been like that struggled mm-hmm. in that environment
0: now I don't know what happened when you came but in the old days uh, pharmacology and pathology and back were separate by themselves yeah. but now pathology has come into the mainstream is that right? yeah, yeah.
1: Pathology's for, you know, the Dunn School's always been a bit of a powerhouse yes. sitting there in South Parks Road. And they make up a certain amount of the medical curriculum, not you know, not a huge amount. Physiological sciences, physiology makes up the most. Right. More than 55% of the pre-clinical teaching is done through physiology. Uh, but... And physiology is DPAC. It's DPAC, yeah. So that's an amalgamation of the old university laboratory of physiology with the Department of Human Anatomy. Yeah. And genetics. And genetics, it. obviously. Came along yes. when Kay Davies was appointed the Doctor Lee's professor. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And um, administration, you mentioned about the divisions. How has that changed, and has it
1: affected things? Well, I think it's definitely affected how the university runs. And I think in earlier on, it was a slightly devolved system with the general board, and heads of department would have to make the case for various events to do with their department. Divisionalization has provided more coordination in the university mm-hmm. in like minded subjects. So, in medical sciences, it has facilitated the preclinical and clinical campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many aspects of that have been very good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other aspects you could debate about. The issue being just the word itself division know imposes mm. a certain description and you know often yeah. we don't want to see that as an impediment to do other things across other divisions yeah mainly mainly for interdisciplinarity i think that's very important especially with the physical sciences
0: yeah physics and chemistry will yeah. be different with they?
1: yeah because i think physical. if you look at how oxford has developed as a university as a science university it really only took off the modern science in the 1800s yeah. in 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 the old Parks Road South Parks Road area and the preclinical schools uh, departments were embedded in amongst the physical sciences you know most unusual you wouldn't build a medical school like that these days you know having physiology pharmacology pathology next to chemistry physics mm-hmm. mathematics um, so that is historical but that's also given great strength the basic science mm-hmm. in preclinical arena. And then, of course, when the Ratcliffe Infirmary moved to the John Ratcliffe, and then the Old Road Campus, then there was a new swing in science that has taken place.
0: Certainly, we were gossiping way back. There was a little interaction between the clinicians and the pre-clinicians. Do you feel there's much more now?
1: Yes and no. I think in the older days there was probably much more because, you know, the the, the physicians and the surgeons were placed at the Radcliffe Infirmary and see many of them especially on the academic side they all had college appointments mm-hmm. so just geographically they would go to their college for lunch um, and you know one was in much closer geographical proximity to the old university mm-hmm. then in the 70s when the John Ratcliffe Hospital was built um, most of that activity went up the hill the old Ratcliffe Infirmary just kept some of the sub-specializations um, and then eventually that has evolved. So, an answer to your question, um, it's different. I think um, people are more mobile now, just electronically with communication. So that has helped. And, and there's still a lot of movement, you know, across the different aspects of the city, with with science. But it probably is not as close as it used to be. Right. Um, in my opinion, just given the geography. And, you know, you get medical societies bring the two groups together, mm-hmm. you know, which you and I are both members mm-hmm. of. So that's always been a vehicle to facilitate that interaction.
0: I imagine now that you and clinicians might easily put in a joint fund application, because yeah. that wouldn't have happened in the old no. days very much.
1: No, no, and and also, you know that that's been facilitated by new funding models at the mm-hmm. university, which have been very good, mm-hmm. um, and you know because of subspecialization, you know if you take cardiovascular or if you take neurology, or rheumatology, then, you know, you can bring in many aspects of science, to underpin new medical discoveries here. Like mm-hmm. it's just not attacking it from a clinical point of view it's attacking it from a basic science point of view and so if you uh, you know often if you're getting chemists biochemists physiologists Mm -hmm. all involved geneticists Mm -hmm. engineers you know you i think there's much more interdisciplinarity now than there ever used Mm -hmm. to be
0: tell me how the whole business of funding has changed because in the old days, you never paid for your bench or your flooring, yeah, yeah. and now you have to pay for the lot. I know. No,
1: well, I think as was a former vice chancellor once said that came to this university, one thing Oxford's very good at is losing money in everything it does, <laughs> which is probably true. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, we never costed anything properly, and these days, you know, there was a cost model. Um, it's still not costed properly. You know, we still lose money on virtually everything we do, apart from industrial research, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But basic research, the research councils, and the charities, you know, the dual support system is very fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, and for every pound you get, many people don't see this, but as a head of department, I see this. You know, it costs money to run money, yeah. so. You, know, you, you can have the direct cost to do your experiment, but you've still got to pay for the heating, the lighting, mm-hmm. and the infrastructure for that work to take place. Mm-hmm. And there's a cost with that. So there is real pressure. This is not unique to Oxford. Mm-hmm. This is true of British science. Um, so and just currently, how much do you get from Europe? Uh, well, we get quite a lot of money from Europe. <laughs> uh, in fact, we, we take more out of Europe than we put in direct costs fantastic indirect costs not so good because we lose money on the EU grants because they're not indirectly costed correctly mm. so again as a head of department I hate them because they cost me money uh, to run mm-hmm. uh, but if you oh, get yeah. one if you get one as a scientist you like it yeah obviously yeah. but they're a bit like NIH grants <laughs> they're, they're lost losers really yeah no, no, yeah no, not no. many people realize that so. no, no, yeah yeah
0: and um, then how have things sort of changed in the, um, in the subjects that are being taught? Do you see much change in that? Well, the type of subject, I suppose. Yeah. The sort of information.
1: No, no, well, anatomy is moderately static, because yes. anatomy is what it is. You're, lear- you're learning a new language, and that language probably hasn't changed for centuries.
0: Well, Tissues of the Body, you know, the Gray Clark's book, was a revelation. Yeah. But you may say it's not anatomy. No, it is. is.
1: And I think, you know, with imaging and technology and physics, medical physics, imaging, spatial resolution has has changed out of all recognition in teaching now. Like, as well as doing standard morbid anatomy, you know, we're now starting to move into more situations of virtual reality, three dimensions. a hol- a hollow lens yeah yeah yep. as we reconstruct right. images uh and students put on their hollow lens goggles and they can see an organ in front of them in space right rotating Gosh. it yeah. and of course if you want to be a surgeon then for surgical planning this type of technology is critically important and you know, I think some areas of medicine have hugely improved as a consequence of this, you know, especially p- precision surgery like neurosurgery mm-hmm. has really taken off because of new technology. Mm-hmm. And the medical students now are getting exposed to this new technology. And uh, w- pre-clinically, pre-clinically, yes. pre-clinically mm-hmm. yeah. Because they're all very tech savvy. Mm-hmm. And I think as, as this moves into the clinical arena, especially in surgery, Uh, then this is going to be hugely influential. So that part of teaching, we're doing it smarter. The basic principles of physiology haven't changed that much, but our understanding of the cellular and molecular processes are now that much better. And of course, that's important for targeted therapy. So the students understand much more now about how drugs work, Mm -hmm. where to target the drug, Mm -hmm. and it's just not seen as a black box where you give something Mm -hmm. and wait for a response our teaching at oxford you know is pretty academic in terms of what we try to get across to the student about how processes work so do people still write essays yeah people still write essays once a week once a week Uh, i'm not sure at all colleges but at this college they do we don't tend to like well i don't get the students to type them I like them to handwrite them, okay. because at the end of the day, that's what they're going to have to do in the exam schools. Yeah, okay.
0: Why shouldn't they type that? Exactly. Anyway, yes.
1: And also, they're not used to writing anymore no. because they get fatigued They're, they're, they're busy <laughs> used to tapping yes. on their yeah, phones sure. and their computers. And I think there is a certain rhythm of thinking that handwriting mm-hmm. brings out. Yeah. Uh, that is, your brain is moving at the right pace mm-hmm. for transfer of information. So. Traditionally, we still give the students the essay to write, to bring back, to discuss. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just not one essay. You know, we're preparing them over many, many terms to sit these exams. Yeah. And so you know, we like to think we're not running content, we're running process, in terms of trying to teach them how to think. Because what I'm really interested in is not their prelims for BM know, mm-hmm. um, it's the final honours school yeah. when the real work starts they, we're, we're preparing them over several years mm-hmm. to really become young scholars and they've got to learn a new language because they don't do this language at school called medicine so
0: as a professor and head of a
1: department do you still tutor? I do every term? every term, right. yeah, I don't have a full load though I have a right. much reduced load right. but yeah, I, I yeah, I'm one of the few heads of department that still tutors. Um, I think I, I, I like it because mm-hmm. I think it's important for the head of department professor to, you know, turn up and give the lectures mm-hmm. um, and teach the undergraduates mm-hmm. as well as doing research. How
0: many at a time would you have?
1: Uh, in my first years, I do them in threes mm-hmm. uh, for finals, pairs. Yes.
0: Yeah, and say so they'd come, and one of them would read his essay or a No, we don't, I, we don't. That's t- a waste of time. Yeah, I, 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 I never no, no, really. I've
1: never taken to no, that. Model. Right, uh, My my line is yeah. The essays will get inked, inked up, mm-hmm. um, and we'll discuss them. Uh, it's not a recapitulation of the lecture. It is more detailed. It's a different focus. It's a different angle, and we may go off piste and talk about other things. Uh, we tend to, in parallel, we tend to run it close to the lecture series, so it's not completely uncoupled. But, you know, having just written a textbook, mm-hmm. um, I, I've got a real appreciation of, and for admiration for people that have done this previously, because yeah, I, I, did I didn't that. realise the amount of work involved. Yeah, yeah. But um, trying to explain complex... Yeah, complex matters to a medical student (laughs) is is, um, you know, it's often difficult. You know, we take a lot of this for granted, but you know, since you know, William Harvey and Starling and these people, well the, the field has grown enormously just given the technology in the system. So uh, yeah, I think teaching is very important mm-hmm. as an academic uh, for the next generation.
0: Is funding a problem of undergraduates mm. and graduate students?
1: Uh, is funding a problem? Well, we can always fill the place up with people. That's not a problem. Whether yeah. they can afford to pay for it is another yeah. question. Yeah. And I guess because we're a state funded university and you pay the same at oxford as you pay at birmingham or newcastle or manchester i think you know we give something different from those universities we're very expensive to run given our style of teaching so 9250 pounds a year no way reflects the true cost of that experience mm. uh, you know roughly it's been calculated at a, it's about 18000 Pounds. So clearly, yeah. there's a cross subsidy that takes place in the system, and the question is how long can that be sustained for undergraduates to have this Rolls Royce experience? And many tutors, we don't want to dumb it down, we want to be able to continue to give mm-hmm. a high yeah. end experience, but that yeah. comes at a cost, mm-hmm. a financial cost. Yeah. Postgraduates, much better because mm-hmm. students are better funded now. In the system Mm -hmm. Um, arguably one could say are we training too many uh, for the jobs that are out there because there's been a huge explosion in postgraduate education in the last Mm -hmm. 20 years but the number of faculty positions has not increased proportionately so a lot of these students and graduates have have to move into other areas um, of work and maybe that's, not everyone has to be an academic. I think you know that's, yeah, that's also I'm sure. important. Um, you know, some go into clinical medicine, yeah. pharmaceutical industry, publishing, yeah. uh, or the City of London. Do you get a lot from abroad now, relatively? Yeah, a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot from abroad. Um, when I first came to Oxford in physiology, there were only eight graduate students in the department. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, there was the, you know, the foreign scholars like myself, you know, Commonwealth scholars, Rhodes Scholar. Um, then you had your MRC students, uh, and that was it. You know, mm-hmm. there was no, no one was privately funded yeah. to come. And, of course, that's all changed now. That is, uh, there's a high percentage of privately funded students. By that, you mean welcome, or their parents? Well, I think their parents. Right. right yeah, no, yeah no, or they take loans yes. to come. Know, we have a lot of privately funded mm-hmm. people in the system. What has helped us a lot are the research charities because they have been terrific in creating these doctoral training programs, mm-hmm. You know, especially the Wellcome Trust right. and the British Heart Foundation, who have given Oxford a huge amount of support mm. for doctoral training in the system.
0: I'm sure you're very involved in the admissions of people. As it were, how important do you think that is in the How critical is it to people's careers to get accepted or not accepted?
1: Well I think coming to Oxford is a badge of honour if you can get into the place so you know it's the admissions are very important here you know it's hard to get Mm. in you know this is you know this is arguably you know one of the top medical schools in the world Mm -hmm. you know if you believe the metrics Um, not sure we do (laughs) but but let's take it it's very competitive. Like medical admissions were just done now, we had one thousand seven hundred applicants for one hundred and fifty places. Yeah, yeah. So you can't interview all those people. You know, you can shortlist four hundred and fifty and interview four hundred and fifty. Uh, and most of these candidates are highly competitive for places at medical school, but we can't take everybody. Yeah. And you know, Oxford is a boutique medical school. And if you look at the best medical schools in the world which are mainly in the United States you know they're about the same size as us Mm -hmm. so I wouldn't personally like to see us get too big as a medical school um, because otherwise I think it'll take away some of the training aspects and personalization that we have with the pupils
0: Do you think it's ever possible to aim off, allow for social background, educational background?
1: Yeah, because well, some
0: are deprived. And, no, um, uh,
1: no question, and we do that. Like we, we, we do factor that. And you now people always ask. You know, is Oxford just not occupied by you know the elite public schools? And you know, aspects of it are in some subjects. But I like to think in medicine, and I, I can only talk about this college because I've been doing it for a long time mm-hmm. here now. But my line has always been that you can't blame the child to the school their parents decided to send them to. Yeah. So. You know, I've yeah, taken yeah. Etonians in one year, along with kids from Scunthorpe and John Leggett College, which you know a more deprived area of the United Kingdom. And you know these kids would not normally meet one another yeah. in life. And to be honest, it's good for both of them. Yes, absolutely. To, to meet one another. Yeah. So my line has always been, I'm interested in you know potential, I'm interested in rough diamonds. I don't like the polished product. Because I don't, I think if you're seeing that at 17, then there's not much more I can do to them <laughs> if, if they're coming in too yeah. polished. But I like to see the potential, and I realise that some pupils come from different baselines because they've had different experiences. And you know, we're interested in their rate of rise, It's yes. the incline that I'm interested in. And even if their baseline is low, you know, if, I think if we can see the potential of them, then we will give them the opportunity. And uh, you know, we've had some terrific pupils here have gone on to have stellar careers. And, you know, we're not, I'm not starting from the position of choosing GPs. Yeah. I'm not, you know, a lot of them may become GPs, yeah. and that's fine because it's important to have bright GPs yes. out there. But, you know, I'm looking for the next generation of leaders in medicine and surgery mm-hmm. uh, who want to do, do tertiary academic work. And and you know most of our, our our pupils you know they've all gone on to become consultants and are now becoming professors of medicine or surgery mm. and that that's that's fulfilling seeing that but uh, you know I think it's harder admissions are harder now mm. than they were thirty years ago mm. and the reason I say that is because thirty years ago if you were predicted three A's at A level and you were pretty darn smart. (laughs) And you'd come in and do the Oxford entrance test and that would usually affirm it. These days you look at the UCAS forms and like they've all got 12 A stars at GCSE. (laughs) They're all predicted three or four A stars at A A level. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're all super brilliant on their forms. And for the poor old tutor, it's pretty hard yeah, to... No, they've all hard. The right, <laughs> no, they, They've all got grade eight, uh, whatever, and, and, you know, have represented their county or country and speak three languages. And, like, there's no way we would ever get into Oxford.
0: Uh, Has anybody ever looked at the outcome of people turned down by Oxford? No.
1: No, sure. No, yeah, right. yeah, no, well, that's probably... That's probably something like we make mistakes, of course oh, we do. Yeah, course. And I always like to say to the students when they come, look, I'm sure you're well suited for medicine, you know, and you know we'll do our best to get the best lot. If you don't make it this time around, then, you know, you'll get into a good yes. medical school, yes. and you may be able to come back to Oxford as a clinical student, mm-hmm. uh, or do a house job mm-hmm. here. Are you involved
0: at all in the decision between? where they, as to where they do their clinical?
1: No, we'll we've changed our policy now at Oxford two years ago Mm -hmm. because before, after the first BM, when they applied to do their second BM, they'd have to apply again to the clinical school. Mm -hmm. And they would, you know, most of them would get in, but not all of them. And we would transfer students to London and then we would backfill them with predominantly students from Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, the policy was changed that it's seamless entry. So as long as you pass your prelims, mm-hmm. then you're guaranteed a place mm-hmm. at the John Ratcliffe mm-hmm. now. Now, we, we don't handcuff the students to the mm-hmm. John Ratcliffe. We would say to them at the end of finals, final honours school in their third year, if you wanted to go to another clinical school, then you can. Mm-hmm. And of course, London schools like our students um, despite what they say about our, <laughs> despite what they say about our lack of anatomy, they still like yeah, our no, students. And you know, I've always argued that was a, quite a good system because it gave the student an opportunity to have a break from Oxford if they wanted it, and also for the students that were ranked down the list. You know, like the students that were ranked 145 to 155 mm-hmm. on exam performance you know, if they're dragging themselves at that end of the class. Now, those, these students are all pretty bright. Yeah. Um, but those right. students typically we would send to London and they would actually then appear in the top part of the class list at UCL or Imperial College. Right. And right. I, I've always said yeah. to the students, look, it's a bit like running the final of the 100 meters at the Olympic Games. Someone's got to get last. Right? Yeah. Someone's yeah. gotta get last. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean you're slow. <laughs> right? <laughs> that doesn't mean you're slow. You're still yeah. fast, yeah. but you got last. And I think that's a little bit like medicine at Oxford. Mm-hmm. Student yeah. number one five five who is seen at the bottom of the class is still pretty darn good yes. at Oxford.
0: Now you've done a lot, as it were, outside Oxford, either editing Journal of Physiology or writing books and right. so on. How do you fit that in?
1: With great difficulty. Any vacations, or <laughs> well, I t- when I was editor in chief of the Journal of Physiology, I, I I used to do about two hours every day. Right. So I would I would tend to do that in the evening, mm-hmm. um, and at lunchtime, and with electronic media these days, you because of the immediacy yeah. thing, you can push information around the world mm-hmm. quite quickly, yes. and I had a fantastic editorial staff in London, mm-hmm. so. You know, I was just really triaging and making, you know, strategic decisions. Right, uh, right. You know, it was a fantastic job, yeah. being editor in chief yeah. of JP, because I saw a lot of science, travelled the world, and met a lot of very interesting yes, people. Right. Um, so I, I, you know, I enjoyed that part, academic publishing. I enjoyed mm. that part of the job. Yeah. You know, just like I enjoy still teaching undergraduates, mm-hmm. because they will always ask you the silly question <laughs> that no one will ask you, but often it's one of the most poignant questions, uh-huh. and especially if you're trying to explain it to them. And you know, when I was doing the textbook with Neil Herring, who was one of my former pupils, who's mm-hmm. now a consultant at the yeah, John Ratcliffe uh, in cardiology, I, I would use different chapters to rehearse on the students. To see how they yeah. in tutorials, to to see how they reacted to the concept yeah. of explaining it. And if they couldn't understand it, and they're all much brighter than I am, then sure. then I think, well hang on, I haven't written that properly. Yeah. You know, if an sure. Oxford medical student doesn't understand this, then you know, how can anyone else understand it? So I, I found that quite useful.
0: Yes and did you do work for say MRC or welcome Or
1: yeah i was i've been on you know i've done my sort of standard <laughs> stint on bhf committees uh and for my sins i did the rae national committee in 2008 then the ref committee in 2014 i've decided to p45 myself from that experience ever again yeah. someone has to do it but i think i've done my tour of duty (laughs) as far as that's concerned
0: I didn't ask you at the beginning but why did you (coughs) move from Otago to Western Australia
1: oh so I was uh, when I left Otago I was sort of traveling trying to still figure out what I was wanting to do and I always you know I got to physiology quite late at the medical school at Otago I had been exposed to anatomy and physiology Mm -hmm. and I'd always liked physiology Kind of left it a bit, and then rediscovered it again mm-hmm. when I went to Australia. And Wolf Simmons was professor of physiology at University of Western Australia, and he was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, mm-hmm. and knew George Gordon.
0: Right. Oh. Yeah, he was
1: that era, yes. and um, had done his DPhil um, in physiology, and so just indirectly, Oxford got planted in my mind Mm -hmm. Um, and then my very good friend John Coop who sadly passed away last year he was Bowman Professor of Physiology at Birmingham Mm -hmm. and I met him um, in the Himalayas because I was very interested in climbing and, and, and I met him in the early 80s and I was trying to decide do I go to LA or do I go to Oxford and John had just been made Chair of Physiology at Birmingham and said to me in a bar in Kathmandu <laughs> in the early '80s. oh Well, why don't you come to Birmingham? Because I, you know, and, and I think you should go to Oxford because that's where all those great respiratory physiologists mm-hmm. are. Mm-hmm. So that's why I came. Eventually, I, I I came to see John, and then then had met Dan Cunningham, Bob Torrance, and Evie Peterson, mm-hmm. uh, and then I was sold to come here. But I, you know, for me, I've drifted. <laughs> of s- s- you know, there's a lot of serendipity. Yeah, well, there, yeah no, there always is. Yes, yes. Uh, to be honest, like this was not pre-planned because, I, you know, I was the first in my family to go to university. You know, like, mm. you know, I come from a farming right. heritage, oh. and you know, everyone left school very early. So, uh, you know, for me, Oxford was a long way away. Mm. Well, hadn't
0: I asked you that I should have? Oh, uh, you've asked me everything. <laughs> <You're> that, rubbish. <laughs> that, no,
1: no, it's been, it's been most interesting. Well, you've been at Oxford a long time, yes. much longer than I have, and you would have seen it change tremendously mm-hmm. during your time as an undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Just the evolution of the clinical school. Like, yeah. you know, that, that's been, the, to my mind, that's been the biggest change in the last 20 years. Yeah. Like, they've, You know, they've, they've done a terrific job, um, you know, the last two Regis professors. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, you know, it's been phenomenal yes. what David Weatherall and John Bell have done, and, and building, you know, modern medicine, you know, medical sciences, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's been terrific. And I think the challenge is to make sure that 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 you know that momentum doesn't get uncoupled from the preclinical schools. You know, that the preclinical schools just don't become some some sort of teaching rump. Of, of the medical school. That, you know. Yes, no, indeed. That, indeed. That, that it's important that, you know, the preclinical departments are not translationally motivated no. departments. Right. You know, their, their USP is different. You know, their USP is to educate, you know, which I would claim the clinical school is too. Mm. But, you know, they're involved in basic fundamental discovery science. Yeah, you know, which may have translation. No, absolutely. And yeah. it's important to have some of your portfolio there, mm. right, mm-hmm. as well as being mission-driven, because you know, a lot of the, you know, the, the new exciting science on the old road canvas you know, is very mission-driven to you know, solve and crack certain diseases, and that's terrific. You know, we need mm. to do that. But at the same time, you need to discover new principles to base translation on, and if you look at all the big Nobel prizes, okay, mm-hmm. you know that have really influenced medical science. You know these have come from these basic science departments. If you look at their history, mm-hmm. fluorescent proteins, right, yes. patch clamping, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah, um, and you can you you can trace back uh, mm-hmm. the technology. I think you'll see the same thing with optogenetics. I think you'll see the same thing with CRISPR, with gene editing. Mm. Right? These have come from basic science yes. departments yes. as the tools have been made, like imaging, for yeah. example. Okay? Mm-hmm. So in clinical medicine, you know, we use we're end users of those tools to help solve problems. Mm-hmm. But Oxford is unique, I think, that it's got this good mix of basic science, clinical science embedded amongst physical sciences. Like, there's no medical school in the world that looks like that. Yeah. You know, that because medical schools tend to be entities to themselves. And Cambridge would be a bit like that. Cambridge, yeah, but I think w- when they te- when they tended to have moved away from the tennis court road right. site to uh-huh. Adam Brooks, yeah. you know, they, they've still kept a little bit of that in their life science program. Yeah. You know, Cambridge is super successful in science. Yeah. Like, they're fantastic. There's no, you know, the LMB and the Sanger there's no question (laughs) about that but I think Oxford is going it's in a transitional period at the moment Mm -hmm. and you know it's important that you know we could be even better uh, you know if we get a lot more integration across the sites you know and be a little bit more imaginative in the way we make appointments um, in terms of adjunct appointments Mm -hmm. across the different departments but you know, I think on the whole, I've spent my life sitting on committees, and allegedly trying to think about strategy. And at the end of the day, you know, probably the best strategy is not to have a strategy. <laughs> yes. and, and and just the, you know, like to my line, just leave people alone and yes, get on with it. not to have a committee. Yes. No, no. Well, exactly. <laughs> yes. And the thing is, you know, the, our job is to hire the best people, yes. and let them get on with it, and provide a good environment for them. And not having too many committees, I, I think, because otherwise it, you know you can be deaf by a committee, mm-hmm. and, and you never actually get anything done. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but Oxford's in great shape. Yes. Do any of the American medical schools have a tutorial
0: system or no, anything like? No. It? You know, it's very interesting, no. isn't it? Because Hamilton, I think, started
1: trying something a bit like that. Maybe I'm yeah. not sure. in yeah. Canada? Yeah. No. They not they. <laughs> Because medicine, on the whole, outside of the UK, is graduate entry. Yes. Right. So they've got a four-year four-year medical degree right. based on a another degree yes. going in, whereas we're direct entry from yes. school. Yeah. You know, we have both models, but mainly we're direct entry from school. Mm. Um, and they're very problem-based, but I would argue that you know we're problem-based too, um, and uh, you know we invented problem-based learning we call it a tutorial yes. <laughs> you know, so you know we do the traditional lecture based stuff mm-hmm. which you would have had as a medical student mm-hmm. but then you come to your tutor and that's where you get your pbl mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. the tutors know a little bit about something but on the whole we don't know much about anything <laughs> and you know there's a little bit of the blind leading the blind but that's what pbl is to an extent it's about facilitation so it's taking them areas that they may not normally have gone but I think the nice thing about Oxford and Cambridge too is that our foundations are very strong scientifically mm. to base the tutorials on I think it would be different if you didn't if you just had the tutorials and nothing else mm-hmm. I think that would be a completely Darwinian yeah, experience sure, sure. but I think the combination of the college and the lectures and the labs is still pretty good yes. for mm-hmm. training students and you know, we get criticized for it as being old fashioned. But having said that, you know, the proof is in the product. Yeah, you know, our yeah. kids, you know, if you look at national examinations, membership examinations yeah. for physicians yeah. or surgeons, we're not doing too bad. No, yeah, sure. Uh, here. And I think having that direct involvement with the college and the tutor, you know, I, I still think is very important because it depends when you ask the question. You know, if you ask the question to a fifth or sixth year medical student about the importance of it, Mm -hmm. or you ask them 15 years later, Mm -hmm. or 20 years later, you get a different answer, when they look back, about the experience. Okay, so I think it depends when you ask the question, Um, because we do it all the time, you know, as we get older, when we see our pupils, you know, climbing, the <laughs> climbing. You know the medical ladder.
0: Anything else you'd like to say? Well, thank you very much, super interview. Really yeah, nice. no, no,
1: my, my pleasure.